Good evening. Welcome. Thank you all so much for coming. Tonight, Wagner's Lohengrin, a very deep and at the same time a very unusual opera. Some of the music is familiar to everyone. There's a wedding march that you've heard, right? But much of the opera is rather difficult to follow and I'm going to try to lead you into the dense thickets of Wagner's Lohengrin. On the 17th, thanks to Yoko Arthur and the Wagner Society, you can go see a film at the screen, an HD broadcast of Lohengrin at 11 a.m. I think it's till 3.15, Yoko, is that about right? So so four hours and 15 minutes. Uh, we will not spend four hours and 15 minutes tonight, but at the same time, I hope to, to give you some insights into this extraordinary work. Uh, for many of you, this is repetitive, but the young Wagner uh, lost his father at the age of six months. He grew up in Leipzig, and uh, the mother uh, married Richard Gaia and uh, Geyer was a man of the theater, and Wagner, through Geyer, got very involved in the theater, wanted to take piano lessons, uh, had a teacher at age 11 told him that everything he did was a first-class abomination. And uh, <laughs> nevertheless, Wagner stuck with it. He was determined to uh, not just play the piano, but create works of theater. And this pursuit, uh, led to an early opera when he was 16 that was incomplete and several other operas that you could see very rarely uh, like Die Feen and Das Liebesverbot and even Rienzi is hard to see. But from there on out those other 10 operas you can see around the world any year and uh, all of them are deep philosophical works and as Wagner grew older and matured they also become more and more through composed works that don't stop and start with one good song or good tune and then uh, come to a halt and then start up again. Lohengrin is really the transitional opera. It's the last opera that Wagner even called an opera because after all, after this, they were all music dramas. So uh, Lohengrin still has one foot in the world of set pieces but you can feel the boundaries breaking uh, it, it all, all the way through the score. All right, Lohengrin himself is a character of legend, uh, not necessarily a character who ever really lived. Uh, the Knights of King Arthur would have been, if historical, sometime in the late 400s. And uh, there was a knight, Percival, Percival and Galahad had exploits together as knights of the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail itself also has several different stories and none of these stories were recounted until about 700 years later. So time had passed and there was disagreement about whether the Grail was a gemstone or a bowl, but finally the Grail that has survived to us most commonly is a goblet. And this goblet may have been used at the Last Supper. It may have been used to collect three drops of Christ's blood when he was crucified. All we know is that at a certain point in history, 
uh, in the late 1100s, poetry was written very prolifically about these Knights of the Grail from many centuries before. So Percival in German, Parsifal, is the subject of a romance by Chrétien de Troyes, and Parsifal has a son named Lohengrin. One of the characteristics of Grail Knights is that with the power of the Grail, they did not age. So it won't surprise you to know that apparently Parsifal was about 400 years old when Lohengrin was born. All right, so Lohengrin now appears in the 10th century, in the 900s, and he is um, a knight of the grail, which means that he has divine power, but there are certain restrictions laid on him. No knight of the grail can allow anyone whom they are helping to know who they are, where they come from, or really what their purpose is. And this is key to the story of Lohengrin. Wagner is exploring something more complicated. In his previous opera, Tannhäuser, he was exploring the seemingly irreconcilable contrast between sensual love and divine love. And in this opera, we have Lohengrin, the knight of the Holy Grail, who stands for Christian values, and then we have a sorceress named Ortrud and her husband Friedrich, Frederick Telramund, who um, represent pagan deities. So this conflict between Christianity and paganism is very strong throughout Lohengrin. Wagner, as you know, uses leitmotifs, what George Bernard Shaw called musical calling cards, so that you know every time a subject is being referenced that the orchestra is going to tell you what it is. So the overture of Lohengrin begins bathed in light. I can't on the piano do exactly what a large string orchestra can do, but you will imagine that uh, first you're hearing pure light and then out of that the theme of the Holy Grail itself. Here's the grail.
prelude continues, grows, tells the story of the grail, really, the history of the grail, and 10 or so minutes later, culminates in a huge climax, uh, which when you're listening to an orchestra is really a, a very thrilling, visceral experience. But the only loud moment in the first 12 minutes of Lohengrin. So from this sacred divine silence, which ends with these chords of light, suddenly we're thrown into a huge crowd scene. Wagner, the dramatist, creates all of this, and the people of Brabant are gathered by the river Scheldt in Antwerp. And who has come to Brabant? King Henry the Fowler from Saxony. Now, Saxony is where Wagner himself was born. Wagner was born in Leipzig and moved to Dresden. So this Saxon region of German is dear to his heart. King Henry the Fowler, who is called that because he was knitting a net for bird, knitting a net for birds at the moment he was asked to be king. This is, this is true, the real, the real King Henry the Fowler, okay? King Henry the Fowler comes up to Antwerp and he wants to tell the Brabantians to help him fight the Hungarian foes, to repulse the Hungarians away from Franconia. So they are happy to accept this, but he's also there, King Henry is also there, to settle a dispute. Because Friedrich of Telramund, the one who's married to this sorceress, Ortrud, I mentioned to you, Friedrich of Telramund should have become the new duke after the death of the duke. And there was a son, Gottfried, a 12-year-old, who has mysteriously disappeared. Friedrich of Telramund accuses this little boy, Gottfried, has a sister. He accuses the sister, Elsa, of having murdered her own brother. Elsa is seemingly incapable of defending herself. Now let me show you how masterfully Wagner communicates this in music. This is 1848. He wrote this opera in 1848. Wagner and Verdi both wrote lots of great operas, and no one will dispute that. Their psychological approach to opera and to character is so different. In 1848, Verdi was writing Nabucco, or no, that's not quite true, but <laughs> earlier in the 1840s, Verdi had written Nabucco, which is seemingly like a series of military marches. Well, Wagner has moved far beyond that in his work. Um, when Friedrich of Telramund thanks uh, King Henry the Fowler, we can already hear the uh, conniving nature of this skillful character. Dank König dir, dass du zu richten kamst. We see Wagner tells us with these chords, the, the man is not straightforward, right? Und Wahrheit könnt ich 
untreu ist mir fremd. Untruth is foreign to me. Only people who are deceitful say things like that, right? Zum Sterben kam der Herzog von Brabant. He's telling the story of the death of the Duke of Brabant and uh, explains that, that Elsa must have murdered uh, her brother. And Elsa, when called upon to defend herself, um, says nothing. She sorrowfully comes forward. And everyone says, sit in. So much deep sorrow expressed in this music. Elsa's leitmotif. wandering off into foreign keys. Until finally. Now, 1848 is a long way before, say, Arnold Schoenberg, but in fact, this beautiful melody that expresses Elsa wanders through all 12 tones in a seemingly effortless melodic way. King Henry says, are you Elsa von Brabant? And do you know the charges that have been raised against you? And all she can say is, my poor brother. Now, Elsa wrote Richard Wagner in a, a letter called A Communication to My Friends, represents the unconscious. Elsa does not choose. She simply acts on her instinct, on her will. And when King Henry says, what is it you have to say to yourself? She explains. Einsam in trüben Tagen hab ich zu Gott gefleht, des Herzens tiefsten Klagen ergoss ich im Gebet. Aus meinem Seelen ein Laut so klagevoll, die zu gewältigem Tönen weit in die Lüfte She's saying, I prayed to God and finally God answered me. And I was granted a vision of a knight who would come and protect me, who would answer for me, and who would protect me from the charges that are being raised against me.
Now, uh, I told you this is an opera about good and evil, and about light and conscious and unconscious. Every time Wagner wants us to know about light, like in the opening of the overture, he uses these very open chords. And when he wants to bring the point home even more clearly, then they play the same chords with tremolo. <laughs> so we hear, we hear the light in the orchestra. And then we hear Lohengrin's motif before he himself appears. So whenever you hear, excuse me, that's Lohengrin, all right. So she now sings. Mit züchtigem Gebärden er mir ein, des Richters willig war, er soll mein King Henry addresses Frederick and says, what do you have to say about this? Frederick says, you can tell she has a lover. She's talking about her lover. This conflict rages on, and Elsa, of course, must produce a champion to fight for her, to fight against Friedrich. She calls, nothing comes. But the third time, she calls, and down the river Scheldt, borne on a small skiff drawn by a white swan, comes Lohengrin in his full armor. You know, if you want a good <laughs> operatic entrance, that's it, right? <laughs> What's better than coming in on a swan? So, now you're hearing Lohengrin's music, but in A major, much brighter and louder and with the whole orchestra. Lohengrin introduces himself. But first we hear, what's this? Oh, we're getting the sing-along already. This is, <laughs> this is the grail theme. Please, you, you can all sing the grail theme along. Oh, here we go. Nun sei Mein lieber Schwan. He says, thank you, my beloved Swan. Now, I'm now I do, I, I want you to know, I'm holding back on you, but later on in the evening, you will hear a great Wagnerian tenor singing this stuff. So for now, just content yourselves. <laughs> um, but I want you to have a feel for what's going on in the opera, and then you'll hear the real thing before too long. All right. So. Everybody is, of course, dumbstruck. Here's this beautiful knight in shining armor who's just been pulled in on a little boat by a magic swan to make things better. And he says, I am here to champion Elsa. And he's asked, do you know which one Elsa is? Well, he walks right up to her. So 
Wagner does not believe, shall we say, in love at first sight, although it happens in his operas all the time, because the characters seemingly have known each other for a very long time. When Senta sees the Dutchman, obviously she's thought about him for years. And when uh, Elisabeth is reunited with Tannhäuser, of course, they really did know each other. But again, here, as in Dutchman, it's clear that in some psychological world, Elsa and Lohengrin know one another deeply. So uh, within 15 seconds, he says, um, if you consent, um, please be my wife. And she says, I give you all my body and all my soul. And everybody else is just watching this. <laughs> but he says there is one condition, absolute condition. You must never ask my name, nor where I have come from, nor what my purpose is. And there's a little motif, not surprisingly, that goes with this, the forbidden question motif. Uh, it goes like this. Nie sollst du mich befragen. So anytime we hear that, and we'll hear it a lot in this opera, uh, you know that we're talking about that question that must never be asked. All right? You can all sing it. It comes both ways, that way and that way. These, these are very um, flexible little motifs that come in different versions, different keys, different rhythms. Now, Telramund Friedrich and Lohengrin duel to the death. Lohengrin, of course, is victorious, but he spares Telramund's life. And he says, I'll give you your life, use it to overcome the sin within you and become a better person. This is wasted on Friedrich, may I say. But nevertheless, uh, that, that is Lohengrin's wish for him. Uh, as he stands with his sword over of him, he says, Durch Gottes Sieg ist jetzt dein Leben mein. Ich schenk es dir, mögst du der Reue And everyone gathered around says, victory, victory to this night. Uh, they're praising him. Elsa sings a big love song to him. He joins her, and pretty soon the whole chorus is jubilantly singing his praises. Well, the second act begins in the Ortrud Friedrich house, where things, as you can guess, are not so happy, because Friedrich has just been publicly humiliated, and Ortrud, the sorceress, is trying to figure out her next step so that she can bring down Lohengrin and Elsa. Now, Wagner, amazing. After all that bright music in act one.
Ah, she thinks. What was that? This is the forbidden question. So within a minute of the second act beginning, Ortrud is planning, how can I get Elsa to ask Lohengrin the forbidden question? And an hour and 24 minutes later, at the end of the act, she has planted enough doubt in Elsa's mind that Elsa is no longer so secure in her wonderful, beautiful, shining night. And how and why does Ortrud do this? Many operas, Verdi's come to mind, are clear conflicts between good and evil. Um, often in opera, the, the uh, evil is victorious. It's not always the case. But in this opera, Wagner is not just having a conflict for the sake of drama. He is exploring a conflict that he feels within himself and within humanity. And it would be very fair to say that in Wagner's mind, Ortrud is not evil. Ortrud believes in a pagan world, whereas she says to her husband, if you can't kill him, at least you could have bitten off the tip of his finger so that I could have done voodoo, essentially, and controlled his life. It's a whole different way of thinking. So Wagner brings these two worlds together, uh, the world of divine Christian sacrifice and of fingertip-biting paganism, where a piece of someone's body is enough to have control over them. So how is Ortrud going to control Elsa? She doesn't ever get a piece of her flesh. However, she manages to persuade Elsa that clearly Lohengrin would have no reason to stoop to be with her unless he had some other motive. And that the only way Elsa can determine what that motive is, is to find out where he came from, what his purpose is, and what his name is. Elsa at first feels the joy of love and says, Ortrud, if only you knew these things and had these feelings, you would not have to question. And Ortrud keeps insisting that it could only be vanity on Elsa's part that makes her feel that confident and could only be trickery on Lohengrin's part that would make him give himself to her so freely. Now, this conflict is timeless. It is a human conflict. When we are in love, we don't really understand the deep mechanisms of how that works unconsciously. We merely accept it. When someone gives a great gift, we don't understand why. They probably don't understand why. The fact is, it's a gift freely given. And if you examine it and ask the question, the whole organic beauty of that situation is lost. We have this in the story of Eve wanting to know, and so eating the apple. We have it in Oedipus Rex. We have Oedipus feeling like it's not good enough to accept my kinghood and my wonderful wife. I need to know everything about it, which ruins him completely. Uh, we have Socrates 
saying the unexamined life is not worth living and thereby uh, causing his own being put to death because uh, it, it's not a good uh, philosophy in certain cultures to say everything must be explored and known. So Wagner asks us the question, just how much is it important to know? Especially, this is interesting because of his letter to his friend saying, uh, Elsa is the unconscious. Do we want to really know what's going on in there all the time? Probably not. So Wagner, who says at the end of his life, I've never truly loved or been loved, uh, explores the dark side of love, the challenging, complicated side of love in every opera. And of course, when it is inevitable love, like Tristan and Isolde, or like Elsa and Lohengrin, it can't be continued. It doesn't keep going on forever, uh, except in death, which is okay philosophically for him to feel. So now, back to our story. Friedrich is furious at Ortrud. Ortrud is furious at Friedrich. Each thinks it's the other's fault. And uh, Friedrich finally bursts out. Hat nicht durch seinen Gericht Gott mich dafür geschlagen. And she sings Gott. Sounds better than that, but that's what she sings. She, Friedrich is saying, isn't it your fault that God has struck me down in this humiliating way? And when Ortrud says God, she says it with such scorn, Friedrich actually says, that word sounds disgusting when you say it, because she believes in gods, not in God. She has a whole realm of gods whom she invokes, and Friedrich is somewhere in this in-between land. But we can hear in his music the disquiet as opposed to the deep faith in the music of Lohengrin and Elsa. They, they may not get what they want, but they are uh, completely true to their convictions throughout this opera. All right. So Ortrud calls on those gods to bring revenge to her. What is this chord that we hear so much, whether in loud, fast music or in... It's this diminished seventh that doesn't belong to a major chord or to a minor chord, but gives a feeling of uh, unease. Now, uh, I'm going to skip ahead, because I mentioned this is a four and a quarter hour opera. Okay. Elsa has been exonerated, and the king gives her permission to marry Lohengrin. In addition, all the people praise her because she's been proven innocent. It's assumed that uh, if a knight appears out of the blue, that that is a clear sign from God. Only Friedrich still wants to make a case in front of the king to say uh, Elsa, Elsa is guilty and this knight, Parsif this knight Lohengrin has 
conspired with her. Now, Friedrich does not uh, expect the king to hear him, but he still pushes this, this case. And um, here, they all praise the king. Mein Herr, oh mein Gebieter, was ist? Wer wagt es hier im Königang zu stören? Welcher Streit? Now, Lohengrin, was seh ich? Das unselge Weib bei dir. Ortrud is standing by Elsa because Ortrud can't stand the fact that Elsa has been raised up in front of the people as an example of virtue. So Ortrud has clambered up just to the top step where Elsa is standing and says, I deserve this place just as much as you do. Lohengrin once again is there to save her. But at the end of the act, when the king and all the people are proclaiming Lohengrin's virtue and Elsa's virtue, Ortrud makes a magic sign at Elsa, and we can tell that Elsa is not confident anymore. Her ability to have complete trust in Lohengrin has been shaken. Is this a good time for a break, a suspenseful break, before we come back? Okay, good. Let's take uh, 15 or 20, and then uh, we'll see how this story resolves in a little bit. Our breaks are great because I find out what people really want to talk about. <laughs> and what everybody wants is for me to tell the story of Leo Slezak. But I think Ray can do a better job. Ray, would you just quickly give us? Well, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Leo Slezak. A lot of you have seen Walter Slezak in the movies. Well, his father, Leo, was a blacksmith. and learned that he could sing very, very well and became uh, an extremely well-known opera singer. And so he's doing Lohengrin one day and things aren't working out just right because the swan boat was towed away before it was supposed to as the music. And now there's nothing on the stage and Schleizak turned around to the audience and said, I say, what time is the next swan? <laughs> Thank you, Ray. <laughs> We're at the beginning of Act Three. Now, how many of you ever heard the Beatles album, Help? All right. So you probably thought that Paul McCartney wrote this. Paul McCartney didn't write that, but they sure had good taste, right? So in the middle of help, <laughs> that happens. Even more well-known than that, once everybody has gathered to this triumphant music, 
treulich geführt, sieht dahin. This is how Elsa and Lohengrin celebrate their, their wedding, you know, just like millions of other people, except they were the first ones to have this music. So, finally, for the first time in the opera, Elsa and Lohengrin are alone. And uh, Wagner uses now the strings and not the brass because it's intimate and it's sensual. And later on, oh, I didn't tell you this. The premiere of Lohengrin, two years after Wagner wrote it, 1850, Wagner could not be there. He couldn't conduct it. He'd been exiled. He had his friend Franz Liszt conduct it in Weimar. And uh, Wagner didn't see the opera until nine years later when he said, oh, there's way too much brass in this. Because by then, he was writing things like Tristan and Isolde that are so much more subtle, uh, and all of this uh, grand French uh, Meyerbeer-style brass writing was no longer interesting to Wagner. Although, when you hear Lohengrin, it's still pretty fabulous. So anyway, uh, the brass is gone, uh, everybody's gone, just Lohengrin and Elsa are left. Das süße Lied verhallt. Wir sind allein, zum ersten Mal allein, seit wir uns sahen. Nun sollen wir der Wald entronnen sein. Kein Lauscher darf des Herzens grüßen nahen. And he says her name, Elsa, mein Weib. So this We've all done this, right? You're in the middle of the most tender love moment and then you say the wrong thing. So the wrong thing in this case is he says her name. Well, she wants to say his name. That's natural enough. And so this drama about uh, an evil sorceress uh, tricking somebody into saying the wrong thing becomes something quite different because Elsa, to be fully in love, wants to be able to do what every lover can do say the name of their lover. So uh, she, of course, thinks of Ortrude and remembers all the reasons Ortrude gave her why Lohengrin is presumably concealing his name from her. So at the end of this beautiful 15-minute love duet, she finally asks the forbidden question. And once this question is asked of a grail knight, there is no turning back. He can't say, oh, I forgive you, or she can't think better of it and say, I didn't really mean that. It's a magic that is greater than the two of them. Even though Lohengrin is granted certain divine powers by being a grail knight. So, no longer possible for them to have this relationship. And Lohengrin calls everybody together because he's obliged to answer this question, not only to Elsa, but to everyone. Now, I just sort of let that go. I know it's horrible, right? We, we all feel really bad about this. <laughs> in, in, in Wagner's mind, 
suffering and sacrifice are more valuable than happiness and happy endings. Um, I can't explain why that should be so, but we can look at his whole life and the works that he created and know that to him, uh, that third real Hollywood ending would not, be, not only be bad opera, but bad truth-telling. And, and whether we agree with all of Wagner's conclusions, he certainly was an artist who felt that he wanted to present the entire truth as he saw it every time he wrote an opera. Uh, the fact that he was such a great and skillful composer is the reason that we still <laughs> listen to his operas. I mean, had, had a lesser composer uh, had the same dramatic ideals, it's very likely that we wouldn't be listening to it now anymore. But Wagner, who, as you know, wrote all of the words to his own operas, had his very clear ideas that he wanted to put across. Maybe they're not so clear. Wagner even, unlike, say, Verdi, who I brought up before, uh, even lets his unconscious play a role on the stage. Wagner said, um, I'm actually in this opera, not only in the character of Lohengrin, who uh, is misunderstood, even though temporarily revered by the Brabantians, uh, but also in the character of Elsa, and I would say also in a third character, because at the end of the opera, Lohengrin confesses to everyone that he is in fact Lohengrin, that he is the son of Parsifal, that he is a knight of the grail, um, and the swan comes to get him, and he gets in the boat, and Ortrud, who just can't let it go, says, ha ha, that is Gottfried, whom I have transformed into a swan, so you can never have the rightful king. And Lohengrin kneels down to pray, and although he can no longer have Elsa, he is still um, connected, and the prayer is granted, and the swan turns into Gottfried, who started all the trouble in the first place. Now, Wagner, this is going to sound far-fetched, but think about this. Wagner's father died when he was six months old. His stepfather, Richard Gaia, do you know what Gaia is in German? It's a vulture. It's a bird of prey. So Wagner was stuck at the identity of being a bird until he was, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? Uh, <laughs> when Wagner was 14, he chose to have the name Richard Wagner. And I think that Gottfried, who in this opera is 12, is also Wagner shedding that bird name that he really never cared for at all, uh, and better a swan than a vulture. But in any case, Richard Gaia became Richard Wagner, and in Lohengrin, uh, the swan becomes Gottfried, the new and rightful heir to the kingdom. So you can buy that or not. I just wanted to <laughs> put it out there as a theory. All right, now, the good part. Uh, although I'm happy to sing all Wagner operas, or any operas, um, Wagner operas, in fact, call for a very special breed of singers. Wagner increased the size of the orchestra, the length of the opera, as you all know. In fact, there's almost no aspect of opera that Wagner did not change. He invented new instruments, 
Part of the reason he didn't get to conduct the premiere of his opera is he also decided he'd invented a new way to run opera houses, and he told the management they were all terrible and should get lost, so instead they got rid of him. Not so surprising. But he also wrote pieces that demanded a kind of singer that had a larger voice, could expand longer phrases, and fit into this grander Wagnerian time scheme. So I happen to have with me tonight just such a singer, and I would like you all to give a huge warm welcome to Mr. Nicholas Simpson. So the first thing we're going to do is Lohengrin's Infernum Land, when he tells the story of the Grail, that uh, in the Spanish Pyrenean mountains of Monsalvat, um, the Grail waits, and the faithful who come to uh, find it and, and respect its divine power are granted divine powers themselves. So this is Infernum Land. Böse Trug verloren. 
when the performance Santa Fe Orchestra performs Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with gigantic orchestra and chorus and soloists, I'm proud to say that the tenor soloist will be Nicholas Simpson. In this, you may have heard the grail motif, bum, ba, ba, bum, ba, ba. the Parsifal motif, I'm uh, sorry, the, the Lohengrim, beep, pa, 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 pa and you heard him talk about Parsifal, his father. After much research, although this may be legend only, I discovered that the mother of Lohengrin, uh, after Parsifal reached the age of 420 or so, as best I can was Kondwiramur. He uh, overthrew the woman that he was with because three mystical drops of blood told him that it was time to uh, change partners, and the princess, you know, deeply, he changes partners. Kondwiramur, uh, the princess, and Parsifal, Percival, have this son, uh, Lohengrin. And so you all know that uh, close to the end of his life, Wagner writes another grail opera, Parsifal, and in Parsifal, there is redemption and there is salvation. In this opera, there is not. Friedrich, the evil Friedrich, tries to kill Lohengrin. Elsa warns Lohengrin at the last moment. Lohengrin stabs Friedrich to death, as he should have done, you know, 10 minutes into the opera. Um, <laughs> Ortrude lives on. It, the, the score says she, she collapses on the stage when Gottfried is transformed back from a swan into a young man. But uh, Ortrud is not killed off at the end of this opera. And Elsa, although she's not killed, dies of grief on stage once Lohengrin leaves. So Wagner, I know, I'm sorry, it's just, just Wagner's expression of two things, of his own artistic soul and of Christianity, which, let's face it, 
takes pride in sacrifice in a way that paganism, I mean, paganism, you sacrifice other people. But um, so, so there's this dichotomy that goes through the opera and uh, Wagner stays true to it right up to the last. So, um, you know, Parsifal and Lohengrin have similar themes, but it is Lohengrin that ends more unhappily. But tonight we're going to end happily because I've asked Nicholas to sing Parsifal's fi uh, Lohengrin's <laughs> final, final aria when he uh, addresses the swan. And so this is Mein Lieber Schwan from the end of Lohengrin.
That's the highest note we can end on, so I think. <laughs> Thank you all so much.